This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to Verchast, the flagship podcast of Samsung Dex enthusiasts. <laughs> and me. <laughs> and Alex Kranz. Hi, I'm Neil. I'm your friend. Alex Kranz is here. I'm your. Fr- I don't know what Dex is. You're no, gonna, I've used it. I've used it. You're gonna find out. Uh, David Pierce refuses to use Dex, so we've replaced him with Dan Seifert, who's gonna show us his Dex setup today. I'm the Dex defender. <laughs> it's coming. Actually, David's just on vacation. Yeah. But for a moment, you thought that I was so hardcore into Samsung Dex that I clipped my friend from his own show, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I would have believed it. It's like, that's who we are now. Yeah. You you and Dan are both like very passionate Dex defenders. In different directions. <laughs> totally different directions. That's what's, and David's like, no. Yeah. If you don't have a strong opinion about Samsung Dex, you can't be a pro or con. I'm, I'm forming one right now so I don't get ejected <laughs> from the room. It's going. It's coming. No, no, no. David is on a very well-deserved vacation. Dan is filling in for him. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm all right. I am not recording through Dex, to be clear. We'll get into it. Not the right tool for the job. I saw Dan in the office the other day, and he goes, look at this. And he pulls out what, by all accounts, looks like a laptop. And we'll, we'll let people look at it in a minute. It's, I mean, it's nuts. And he's got his, like, phone magneted on the side, and he's like, it's Dex. And I was like, that's awesome. And I was like, you have to come on the Vergecast and talk about it. And the first thing Dan said to me was, I will not record through this. I don't trust it enough. <laughs> he just like, nothing mission critical is happening here. Dan, show us your... Just frankly absurd Galaxy Fold Samsung yeah. Dex okay. laptop right. setup. It's I'm so going to try good. and show it to the camera as best as I can. But remember, it's a radio show. It's a radio show. So if show, you're in your but... car right now, pull over and close your eyes. <laughs> and in your mind's eye, imagine what Dan is saying. Or alternatively, pull over and watch this on YouTube. Those are your two choices. Yeah. Uh, so this is like not a new thing, to be clear. Uh, I bought a Next Dock, which is a lap dock thing. Uh, it's been out for a couple of years. This idea has been out for like well over a decade. You plug your phone into it. It's a laptop looking thing, but there's no guts inside of it. There's no computer inside of it. It's just a touchscreen, keyboard, trackpad, battery, and you plug your phone into it. But what I did was I got this magnetic <laughs> mount. It's like a folding MagSafe mount. So I put a MagSafe. If anyone's been following me on any threads or or Mastodon, you might've seen that I put a MagSafe ring on the back of my Z Fold. And then I bought this magnetic mount that I stuck to the back of the next dock. And so now I've got a deck set up 
with my phone on the side and it, it's effectively a dual screen Dex. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it's it. It's the world's worst Chrome. Wait, is it a dual screen or a, a triple screen? It's like dual. is the Dex? It's dual. It, See, there's two. Yeah, but the, the fold, I almost feel like is a, a dual the, screen. The, technically, it's triple screen because the back of the fold has a screen that's not <laughs> yes. being used. If I could display something on the screen for people sitting across from me at the coffee shop. I'm actually astonished that Dex doesn't put up a full screen <laughs> ad on the back of the fold yes. screen. That's like, you're witnessing the power of Samsung Dex. Yes, now go buy a fridge. Uh, <laughs> that would be quite wonderful, actually. Uh, but no, it's 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 a dual screen thing. I got my phone on one side. The cool thing about this setup is that you can use the phone as a phone. And you so can. like that looks like a phone. Then on the other side is the Dex interface. It and is also significantly better than what you were rocking. You know, it is it is such a vast improvement over my <laughs> attempt to use Dex. The problem with it is that you still have to use a Galaxy Fold. You have to buy this fake laptop. I don't have a problem with that, but yeah. I my I did not enjoy one minute of using the Galaxy Fold. <laughs> just the every piece of that just made me. And I, that's not to say I don't enjoy using Android. I like using Android. The Galaxy Fold is a very particular device yes. with very particular demands, and I just didn't like it's it. It's got a particular set of skills. We can yeah, say that. And the skills are being clunkier than a regular phone. <laughs> Maybe, but it can do a lot more than a regular phone. I, you know, I think like just to like back up on the Dex conversation <laughs> here, I think there are like two things that are appealing about Dex. One is what you've been trying to do, Eli, which is like I'm going ultra lightweight. I'm just traveling with my phone, and I roll into the office, yeah. plug into a hotel desk, and I have a, a desktop setup with a keyboard, mouse, and a big screen. There, that is one dream. Yeah. The other way, the other path that's interesting to me, at least, is the setup that I've got here, which is like you could say. Well, you're just carrying around as much as a MacBook Air and a phone anyways. The difference is I don't have to like sync between two different devices here. Everything's running off the phone. All of my data is running off the phone and it's using my phone's internet connection. So what this is doing is essentially giving me a laptop-like experience with integrated cellular that I can't really get through Apple or really through a lot of other parties. So that is like the interesting thing. All that said, both paths can lead to madness and there's a lot of junk involved in either one of them. I just find it pretty fascinating, A, that it works at all, and B, yeah. how far it's come since I first experienced Dex way back in, like, 2018. It is, it is wildly you, different. You don't find it fascinating. No, you are no, delighted no. by it. I am. Like, I'm delighted by gadgets, even if they don't work yeah. as well as some other solutions. I was getting they let me DMs from you. About this thing. You're just like, look at it. It works. Yeah, it looks cool. it's very cool. It looks cool as hell. Again, my my the beginning of my dex journey started by knowing dan had been dex pilled yeah but then what happened when you saw that there was like a fake laptop involved well so first i was like okay this is so much closer yeah to what i thought i wanted right and then he showed me the next stock which is the most aggressively 16 by 9 laptop <laughs> in the world yeah like the amount of bezel that is on the bottom of that display. You can see it from here. It's, yeah. it's, it's a good inch below the display. Of you could make yeah. that laptop 4.3 just by reclaiming bezel. <laughs> yes. yes. It's it's a lot of bezel. Uh, and then it's still Dex, which is clunky. and. and what if you left the laptop at work? And yeah, what if I just had a desk with a laptop on it that I left here? Like I used to do in the before <laughs> time. That's that's where we're going. But see, if someone steals this one, they're not going to get important Neli secrets. Yeah, you can't log into it if there's no phone. Yeah, it's just a fake laptop. Look, I 
I know it's the the dream is that you just walk around with a cool phone. Yeah. Just plug it into stuff and having it turn into your thing. Yeah. That's the dream. It, we all agree that's the dream. 100%. You, you throw it in the cup over your car, the car lights up, and it's your phone. Yeah. You can, you can, you can sort of get there, but you have to experience CarPlay. For better or worse. It's great. You, you, you come to the office, you throw it on a, a, a magnetic charger, like a pad, screen lights up, you're doing all your stuff. Everyone knows what the dream is. Yeah. I get emails by people who are like, I feel you on the dream. And then you sit down and you're like, I have to use this Galaxy Fold. Which, again, like the screen, the screen is just like a bubbly, wavy experience. I, I mean, I don't know if it was like your specific one or whatever. No, but yours like, is too, Dan. I mean, so... If you look at mine, I can see it from here. Five. If you're looking at it off axis, then yeah, you can see that crease and stuff like that. But when you're holding it straight on, you really don't see the crease. And when the screen is on and you're like experiencing content, you don't see the the crease. It Uh, just disappears. It just disappears. Like I've read like a hundred books on it this year. The Pixel Fold, which has I think the better aspect ratio. When it's full. See, I disagree entirely. Because I want to use it as a phone a lot of the time, mm-hmm. and the Galaxy Fold does not lend itself to being used as a phone. No. Because it's too tall and too skinny. So you're always unfolding it. The Pixel Fold at least folds in that direction. And it got a big update this week, along with the rest of the Pixel updates, which we will talk about. There's actual news this week, like quite a lot of it. <laughs> but we're going to do the first 20 minutes on Dex. Anyway, the Pixel Fold got an update this week uh, that forces any app to work on its on its version of a folding display mm-hmm. at full screen. Maybe I'll try that, but it doesn't have a Dex mode. No, you can't plug the Pixel Fold into anything. It doesn't have video out at all. Like, come on, turn it into a Chromebook. Let's do this. First party Dex. What if you just like slap it into the, the flagship back of podcast of requesting Google make Dex? <laughs> uh, do it, Google. All right, that's that. That's one thing. So the, the DEX experiments continue apace. I don't recommend them. But if you have strong opinions about DEX, we want to hear from you. Two, and I just want to mention this before we begin. Mm-hmm. There's a big Supreme Court case about the social media moderation laws that were passed in Texas and Florida, which by, I'm just going to tell you, they're blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah. There's pure violations of the First Amendment. They are government speech regulations. But they're at the Supreme Court. Supreme Court's going to whatever. Um, amicus briefs are being filed in these cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is by public knowledge, which we those are like supporting briefs. Right? The supporting briefs, They're not from the parties. It's just people with strong opinions mm-hmm. filing briefs to the Supreme Court. So you look at the dockets; a bunch of people are filing them. Public knowledge, which is an organization that we have talked to a lot, folks from public knowledge you have encountered on the verge many, many times. John Bergmayer, public knowledge you have probably encountered in our stories or our podcast in the past. He sent me an email today. He's like, "You're in our brief," uh, and they cited "Welcome to Hell, Elon." Yes. In a Supreme Court brief today, uh, <laughs> which means "Welcome to Hell, Elon" is now part of our government's history. <laughs> like it's just it's on it's in the, it's in the docket on a pivotal First Amendment case. I'm, when do you think like law students are going to start having to read? It's required reading for them. When my mom read this, she call, she didn't even call me. She was so upset at the number of f bombs in the story <laughs> that she called my sister, <laughs> and my sister had to call me to call my mother. <laughs> who then said, why did you use some such language? And now, now Clarence Thomas is going to read that shit. And I just, I'm just, I'm just, anything can happen. That's my message to the youth of America. Any, anything can, can happen. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually, the, these cases are, are big deals. Mm-hmm. What's inside of it is do social networks have the right to moderate their networks? Do they have their own First Amendment rights to make choices on their networks? And I think the answer has to be yes. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. The answer has to be yes. Because that way you can get 
things like subreddits. Yeah. And you need things like subreddits. You need maybe you need something like X that is moderated in one very specific way and something that is different and to let people decide. So that's the heart of this case. But it is just very funny to me. I think it's great. I'm very excited for you. I'm just, again, I I just hope Clarence Thomas. I describe the Supreme Court in this piece as a group of uncool weirdos. (laughs) I mean, I think most of them will read that and be like, fair. I I hope so. Most of them, not to Clarence Thomas. I feel like I can go through the nine and be like, who will will see themselves and who will, like, Alito is going to be pissed. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Alito's like, look at these Jordans. I'm cool as shit. Kagan's going to be like, I get it. (laughs) Understood. If anyone can AI generate for me a photograph of Samuel Alito pointing at his Jordan saying I'm cool as shit <laughs> I'm not sure what we'll do with it but I will accept it <laughs> just into your heart <laughs> just, just happy to experience it Samuel Alito and the black Jordans okay <laughs> there is a lot of news this week let's start with Google we, we've already been talking about Google big news this week they launched Gemini it's the new AI model they've been talking about it for a while they started talking about it even when they launched Bard the first time even at uh, IO, they are saying we have this new model called Gemini. They, they've been doing demos of it. It is finally here. It is obviously meant to be the big step change competitor to ChatGPT, in particular GPT-4. Yeah. Uh, David talked to Sundar Pichai and Demis Asabas, who runs Google DeepMind, the head of AI over there. They're, they keep talking about benchmarks, which I, I would like to get your opinions on. <laughs> We've reviewed many products. Yeah. There's there's an importance of benchmarks in the world. I don't know what an AI model benchmark is, but they talked about it a lot. They talked on about 30 it a lot. out of 32 benchmarks, Gemini beats GPT-4. That's like a gamer's nexus number of benchmarks to run. Yeah. I don't know, man. So we should talk about that, what that means, and if that is a useful measure for us as we can figure out like how all of us should evaluate different AI systems. But that is their claim. 30 out of 32. Sam Altman, you're back. Guess what? You got fired again. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> Sundar told David that the, eventually Gemini will be integrated into Search, its ad products, into Chrome. Like, this is the thing they're going to build on. It's in Bard. You can play with Bard. I want to talk about Bard in a minute. And then the main, the main, main thing about Gemini is that it is multimodal from the jump. Right. So it understands video and audio. It can spit some of that stuff out. There's a really fun video that Google released where a person is drawing a picture of a duck and it just sort of figures out that it's looking at a duck. Cool. That's cool as hell. Uh, I would I would posit that hot dog, not hot dog, again, <laughs> remains the baseline <laughs> framework to understand the entire AI industry. Uh, that's a duck. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's a duck. Uh, so it's cool. It's like fun to play with. It's cool. The addition of multimodal capabilities is what really happened this year in AI. That was yeah. the big step change. Uh, and then obviously Google has new chips. It's more efficient. They're excited about all The multimodal stuff, that's not actually live for, for most people. That's only like for like businesses, right? So these are the, these are the three models. Yeah. So there's Gemini Nano, which runs only on the Pixel 8 Pro. Mm-hmm. And Google is very excited about this. Now the phone is the best phone for AI. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Um, so it's only on Pixel 8 Pro. It's Gemini Nano. That's the smallest version of the new model. It can run on the Pixel 8's tensor processing, all that stuff. Then there's Gemini Pro, which is what you can go use in Bard today. Right. And then there's Gemini Ultra, which is not out yet. Okay. And But that's the one, like, because the Pro version is still just in Bard like, that's the only way we can currently access it. And BARD is still just text-based. Yeah, the, the pro version is still a chat 
chatbot type of thing where you type in, it gives you typed responses back. And Ultra is the one that involves vision and pictures and video and stuff like that. And you're right, uh, Alex, that is like the difference now. And so we can't really experience the multimodal aspect of this just yet. Ultra is coming out next year, according to Google, and it will most likely be used for the more enterprise applications that are the higher demand, higher intensity stuff. Well, that, that's the part that like Google is the most excited about, like over and over again. Yeah. Besides that and the benchmarks, they're like, yeah, it's really fast and you can do all this stuff and you can't see any of it well, yet. It's, it's a new thing, right? right. Like like the, the chat interface we've had all year with chat GPT-4 and, and the others as well as Bard. So like it, a better chat interface is great, appreciate it. But like the new thing is the multimodal thing. So that's understandable why Google is most excited about that. That is like the thing that if you want to put your on your like predicting hat, like a robot is going to use a multimodal LLM AI interface in order to navigate the world. So like, that's like the exciting futury stuff. So I, I get it. And that's basically what Demis said in our piece. You can see how we would get to robotics with a model like Gemini, or at least they can see it. What we can see is uh, Google Park. Right. But you can see how a robot looking at something would be able to make some interpretations of it, spit out some new commands, and go. So that this brings me back to, like, how do we evaluate this stuff? I've been thinking about this a lot. You've been playing with it a whole lot, too. I, it's, I'm addicted to playing with Bard. Because there's nothing funnier than asking a Google product how it will impact search. <laughs> you know, it's just like it's, they got to dance around it. Um, so I think playing with Bard is really interesting. I think the connection that Bard has or lack of connection that Bard has to the Google search generative experience is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So Bard is supposed to be a pretty self-contained experience. Yeah, You open the chat bot, you ask it for stuff, it can summarize things for you, it can watch a YouTube video for you. Again, huge problems with that idea. Like if the robot's watching the YouTube video for you, does the YouTube creator receive any money? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think Google knows the answer to that question. Cliff Notes knows the answer (laughs) <laughs> Maybe. Um, so I've been playing with Bard a lot. Bar, I, it, so far, Bard just has confidently hallucinated at me, left and right. Yeah. Uh, I asked it why a Google executive would be upset at The Verge. I won't name names this time. You can go look at my threads <laughs> post. Uh, and it like made a list of answers. And then it confidently hallucinated, complete with a link to YouTube. Yes. A Vergecast interview that has never occurred. <laughs> it just took us to the Vergecast channel page. Oh, thank you for the promotion, Bard. Great. But that, to me, is so nuts. And then I asked, why did you do this? Yeah. And it apologized to me. Like, I'm very sorry. I misinterpreted some facts. I assumed this had happened. I read some, like, titles of other Vergecast episodes, which random, like, not even relevant, like, even in the realm of relevance. And it's like, but but it turns out on, on further examination, like, this didn't happen. And I was like, why do you do this? And I was like, I'm, every day I'm getting better. Like you, That's how I, what I say whenever I do, like file a really bad blog yeah. and I get hard at it. So I'm like, don't look, I'm working on it. Every, every day, day I get better. I didn't, I didn't read the source material. Yeah. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm very sorry. You put that up against 30 out of 32 benchmarks and it's like, wait, there's only one benchmark, right? Yeah. Uh, does it lie to you all the time? Can you trust what it says? I don't think they're benchmarking that. It appears not. I think they're benchmarking things like, can it do math? Right. Because a lot of the benchmarks seem to be around coding. And so there was a ton of coding benchmarks. And that's really where it sounded like Google is the most excited about it, is it's going to put a whole lot of coders out of jobs because it can do it as well or better. Uh, And then not a lot of conversation about the hallucinations, which for me and you and I think most people is like, that's what I actually care about. 
Like, I'm happy it can do Python really, really well, but I need to know if it's going to lie to me and destroy the world. Or just lie to me and 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 keep showing me fake Vergecast videos. I'm going to read you the, the, some of the benchmarks. Okay. Okay. There's MMLU, which is Massive Multitask Language Understanding. Oh. It scores a 90% compared to GPT-4's 86%. Ooh. That means something to you. Yeah. Uh, there's Big Bench Hard. <laughs> that's what that's called. <laughs> Uh, these, the, the, that's a reasoning one. That's the one we put on the gaming yeah. laptops. Big bench hard. <laughs> uh, it's a diverse set of challenging tasks requiring multi-step reasoning. Uh, Gemini did 83 point, Gemini Ultra, mind you, 83.6%. GPT-4 is 83.1. There's something called drop, which is reading comprehension. 82.4 for Gemini Ultra. 80.9 for GPT-4. Um, I swear to God, this isn't a blog post that Google published. There's a reasoning benchmark for AI systems called Hella Swag. <laughs> All of these sound like the like skills comprehension tests my kids go through in elementary school, where they take the state tests and they're like, "Are you at grade level? Are you above grade level? Are you behind grade level?" Yeah, that's what all of these sound. Are like you at hella swag? Yes. <laughs> what is your hella swag level? Are you at Are you at acceptable hella swag? Are you hella hella swag? Are you just swag? Yeah, Gemini's just swag. Eighty seven point eight. Oof. 95.3 hella swag score for GPT-4. Let's go! <laughs> I would remind you, again, that GPT-4 is made by a company that is in pure turmoil. It's uh, <laughs> fired and rehired a CEO in a matter of days. But it's swag. It's super swag. Uh, there's some other ones. There's math ones. Uh, GSM-8K, 94.4% uh, for Gemini, 92.0. So you can just read these. They're all in Google's blog post. We'll link to it. My point is you look at this and with a benchmark test for a gaming laptop, I I can draw some conclusions about, I don't know, how fast the laptop is. Yeah. How well it will play Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Yeah. So well. A game it's people love to play. the best. People love it when we benchmark Shadow of the Tomb Raider. <laughs> Nobody loves anything more it's than when we benchmark Shadow of the Tomb Raider. But uh, those things are related to what you might do. Right. And I'm, I'm just reading these benchmarks for Gemini, and I understand why Google's proud of them. Yes, it is true. On 30 out of 32, the number in their column is blue. And on 2 out of 32, the number in GPT's column is blue. That Great, you won. It doesn't mean anything to me yet. And then in actually using the product, I find myself saying, well, if I can't trust it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it reminds me of the battery benchmark testing. Like, yes, I was about to say the same. Like manufacturers do rundown benchmark tests. All of them do this on laptops, mobile devices, whatever, whether they're Apple, HP, Dell, whoever. And they will come out saying 22 hours of video playback time, which means nothing when my laptop dies in five hours of me using it. Well, because you, you look at it. And you see there's usually an asterisk, and it's like, we've turned off the Wi-Fi, we've turned off the Bluetooth, yeah, we've turned off the soul. Like, yeah, we, we, the screen might not even be on, <laughs> but we did it. And and it's the same thing here, where it is actually really, really hard to test a battery mm -hmm. because, there, because there are so many variables. And in the same way, there's so many variables with hallucination. So it's, it's like, it's really hard. They can't even figure out how to make something to test if it's hallucinating. How are they going to make a benchmark to yeah. test if it's hallucinating? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think it is fascinating that they have a benchmark for understanding infographics. I think that's cool. Someone had to come up with that benchmark. Yeah. And and someone had to point out that Gemini Ultra gets an 80.3 on that benchmark. Nailed it. Whereas the GPT-4 gets 75.1. We can talk about the actual product. I'm I'm focused on this 
because I think there's a tendency with all tech products to try to find some objective measure that will say that Apple is definitively better than Microsoft or whatever it is. Windows drools. Yeah. Look at this benchmark. Like, we live in it. And I'm just trying to apply that instinctively to being shown some benchmarks. And I'm like, but I don't. I think it's so hard to do with AI because AI is, like, especially large language models, so nebulous. It is so vast, right? Like, yeah. like the amount of stuff it's ingesting and then that it can, like, recreate is enormous. We are very close to being like, I'm going to measure Gemini's skull and tell you how smart it is. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's like, it's right. right there. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh, do we want to do that? Uh, so there, there's just some, some weirdness here. But at the same time, knowing that one of these is good or worse at decoding infographics, um, I shared a, a post with Andrew Moreno, our engineer, the other day, where someone was uploading all of the manuals to old Roland synthesizers. To <laughs> that GPT, would be something you two would talk about. And then about. asking it how to make the sounds on Cure Records. And it would just <laughs> read the manual because those manuals are impenetrable. Yeah. And it would just like spit out some settings for various songs. That is the coolest shit in the entire world. Were, were they yes. accurate though? I don't know. It was just a threads post about somebody who was, was excited. Cool. But it's like, I'm certain it got. Closer than if you were just ice cold reading the manual, right? Especially a manual that 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 that's impenetrable. I mean, if it gave you some like Depeche Mode settings when you asked for the cure, that would not be very good, right? I mean, that would cause a holy war. Let's be exactly. that's careful. my point. Uh, but I, there's just some of that which I think is so cool that these tools can do, and I don't know how to evaluate a company telling me. I don't know how to make the connection between the, the benchmarks are better. And the capabilities are better. I think it's because it's really – it's hard for them to do. So they're like, okay, well, I can lean on benchmarks because this is, like, something I can actually say. I don't have to just be like, doesn't it feel nicer? Which you get a lot of times with with gadgets. They always yeah. are like, give me those those subjective things. And largely with, with AI, it is largely subjective. Like, okay, yeah, it's cool that it can do Python and stuff better. But the, the big stuff, the stuff that most people are going to be using it for, is all that – the subjective stuff. And you can't – test that like it feels like you more have to do like a research project like it's more like anthropology or something i feel yeah. like than it is like mathematics and, and computations right and do everything. these models have different personalities right do they are they better at different things because their cultures are like you do start to get into some very deep questions about the nature of intelligence and then you're like uh, someone asked it if i was handsome and it was like mm. <laughs> It, it, like literally said, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I was like, "Well, you got a little bit of personality there." <laughs> <laughs> All right, I see how it is. Like, Damn. Yeah, it's like his contributions are vast, but I no no. <laughs> so anyway, people should play with it. I'm curious what people think of it. Uh, there is obviously the future of Google's business is here, right? The future of the search business, which is the cash cow for Google, is sitting right in this product. And I still don't know how that's going to work. And I don't know if Google yet knows how it's going to work. How is it working in the Pixel? I haven't tried the Pixel version yet. And I'm just curious, like... So the Pixel A Pro is only... There's two things today. It's auto summarization in the recorder app and smart reply in the Gboard keyboard or now Gemini Nano. Okay. Yeah. I mean... And you can really feel that 29th benchmark. Yeah. Like, when you're <laughs> using smart reply in the... Yeah. Pixel keyboard. I mean, look, those are uh, auto reply, auto complete. That stuff is really important. Mm -hmm. That's true. That is true. Like but the AI stuff they've been doing in the recorder app is neat. And like for, you know, a lot of our reporters are, like yeah. it. 
like like a lot of our reporters are like, oh yeah, I'll use a Pixel phone to just record because I don't have to worry about all the variety wide variety of transcription services that cost a lot of money and also use AI. Yeah. So you can just do it that way. That like that's genuinely useful, but for a very small group of people, I imagine. Google is always thinking about the, the, the hardworking journalists yeah. of the world when they make yeah. uh, the Pixel features. But if you're recording a meeting and it summarizes the meeting for you and that gets meaningfully better, that's, that's great. And, that, yeah. and if that happens locally and you're not sending your enterprise work product off to a cloud service, that's good for you. Um, going to do all my CES briefings this way. It's just like throw the phone down and be like, <laughs> talk to this robot. Let's It'll go. summarize what you have to say for me. Um Anyway, but that, so that's the big news of the week. Like, this is the future of Google. You can just go play with Bard. It's neat. There's other AI news this week. Uh, so Bing, to your sweet Bing, announced Bing. something called Deep Search. So the <laughs> Bing has always been... I can't believe I'm going to say this. We started with Dex, and I'm going to go to Bing. There's always been one really fascinating part of the Bing search product as <laughs> it relates to GPT-4. I just want to sit with that sentence for a minute. It's... <laughs> They've been doing – I don't know if it has been good or it's worked or it's taken one point of market share. <laughs> but they've always been doing something really interesting, uh -huh. which they call search orchestration. Mm -hmm. Now what it's going to do is take that one step farther. It's going to read your search query. Microsoft's example is how do point systems work in Japan? It's going to figure out all the things that could mean and then it's going to go search for those things and lace them together. So you can figure out if you mean credit card point system or weird social credit systems or whatever it is. And it's going to lay so scarce. So it'll take more time, but it's actually sort of like expanding your query for you. Yeah. And doing a bigger, deeper search of the web, I mean, which, it's, it's which just, I think is fascinating. Yeah. I feel like, you know, looking at it and, and seeing what they did there, I think that's a great example of the loyalty programs because it is something huge. It is nebulous. And if you don't have like the card, the points guy or whatever uh, for, for your region, that is genuinely useful. You want that that summary. And, and like that's hard to do on your own. Yeah. You so, can, but it's obnoxious. So what's really fascinating to me about this is that if you will remember when, when ChatGPT launched and Bing launched, there was that explosion of interest in prompt engineering. Yeah. And we had lots of conversations with people, lots of executives around Decoder saying prompt engineering is just a thing that's going to happen in the middle. There needs to be other well, join kinds the of Well, just yeah. did that great piece on, on prompt engineering. Yeah, and everyone, there's this theory that that's like a local, that's like a flash in the pan moment. Yes. And then you look at what Deep Search is doing, and it is mechanically taking your query to the Bing search engine and rewriting it to be a longer prompt. So it takes how do point systems work in Japan, and it rewrites the prompt to Bing as provide an explanation for how various loyalty card programs work in Japan, including benefits, requirements, limitations of each. And then it goes on. It's like a full paragraph long prompt. And you see that Microsoft has learned that it, it should just automate prompt engineering for you. And that's how it should constantly talk to the LLMs. Uh, it's, a, it's another job claimed by AI. <laughs> <laughs> Created and claimed in the same year. Uh, and, you know, now that we know more about particularly how, how Bing works, like the huge meta prompt that it feeds into GPT is crazy. That's just that the one that killed Sydney basically yeah. and killed the personality and puts the guide rails is just a meta prompt that is appended to your query. And so I don't know if that's how Google is managing Bard. I don't know if like, that's how they all work, but this is very much how Microsoft is starting to manage Bing, which is fascinating. It's hysterical. Uh, and this uh, this deep search tool is just like kind of an extension of that. Yeah. 
Well, and I appreciate that it's it's pretty candid about it. I'm curious, like, in practice, how often it's going to show you that whole search prompt so that eventually you, you can figure that out and be like, okay, well, so I just do a whole paragraph now instead of being like, tell me how to fix it, <laughs> which is probably useful for people. I mean, yeah. I would do that. I don't know. I'll, I'm sure most people would just be like, tell me how to fix it because that's faster and easier. But. Yeah. So, the, But the race to, to, to your point, yeah. the race to just answer the question continues apace. And I think for Google, the Gemini stuff is exciting. It shows they're in the game. They're ex- they're excited about it, very obviously. Sundar, you know, did a press tour, the whole thing. But how they turn that into money is still a huge open question. Yeah. And I, I just don't know the answer. But if the end result is you ask the LLM a question, it just tells you the answer, whether it's going through this, like, secondary prompt engineering exercise or not, or it's passing the hella swag test yeah. or whatever it's doing. Uh, they got to put ads in there somewhere. They got to they make some money. I have seen some people say they think that Gemini Ultra mm-hmm. will be a subscription product the way that GPT-4 is a subscription product. GPT-3.5 is not. Or how Grok is oh, a subscription product. Uh, yeah, Grok also launched this week. Yeah. Don't. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last two little bits of AI news. Let me take a break. Uh, Apple also made some AI news this week, which is the first time Apple has made any AI news, uh, really. Baby steps. Uh, baby steps. They released a new model framework called MLX that allows you to run various kinds of models and various uh, coding languages like PyTorch on their chips using their memory architecture ideas. I bet that was an internal tool that they were like, it's good enough. We can now make it public. Because they, that, that's been a big deal at Apple is they don't want to actually use all the other AI tools, but they want their own AI tools. Yeah. So they've been having to like, how do we build our own BARD and... Gemini and yeah, why are well, these names all? Done? Well, and Apple is also leaning more into the open source world. Yeah. So if you are, if you you know, you're an open source researcher, you want to use Meta's Llama, which is open source. You want to run Apple Silicon. You now have a framework to do that that Apple is providing and supporting. Will that get you anywhere? Like I, I don't know. I'm curious to see how well the Silicon handles it because just how different all the different architectures handle AI, and it's particularly like that stuff is like. The Apple Silicon is very specifically built for a specific type of processing. And it's good at the other stuff. We've seen how good it is with video. And I'm just really curious if that translates as, like, GPU kind of translates. I think you're right. Like, Apple has very particular GPU ideas. Yes. But they also have very particular neural engine ideas. Yeah. And we, we've we just never seen anyone attack that part of their chip to go head-to-head with, like, an NVIDIA yeah, because all they have GPU. to do is is say, like, yeah, it, it opens your phone real fast. It's really good at it and it's super smart. And it's like, cool. I have no way to ever test any Apple product. That's why Here's we do Here's what you do. You run Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Yeah, I was like, that's why we got Shadows of the Tomb Raider. It's the only thing that works. The only way to test an Apple product. Okay. And then the last little piece of AI news, I would just remind everyone again and again and again, these companies are running rampant with copyrighted information to train their systems. No one knows if it's legal. They are insistent that they are. But all of them, all of this money, coin flip, fair use lawsuit, could take it all down. <laughs> It is just true. It's it's a total coin flip. You might have some opinions. I have some opinions. Our company has some opinions. Sundar Pichai has some opinions. I know Sachin Della has some opinions. I've asked all of them, and they're like, "Yeah, the legal process will have to pay out." Getty's lawsuit, Getty Images lawsuit against Stability AI, is now going going to trial in the UK, and they obviously have sued here too. The law in the UK different than the law in the United States. This is just a gigantic time bomb in the middle of the AI boom yeah. is that no one knows what this training data is fair use. Again, I, I have an opinion. I think it is probably not 
and I am not that person. <laughs> That's not how I came up at all. That's not that it was just a surprising opinion for me. But the idea that you can just take all of this stuff, just hoover it up, and somehow create billions of dollars of value for your users out of it—that seems wrong. Without any any return, just on its face. It seems like you're going to go to a court with that argument and something there is going to happen that you cannot predict. Yeah. Weird. Just weird. And so we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. The courts are not predictable. We're all going to get like 50 cents for our tweets. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. Sorry. Here's your 50 cents. We used your tweets. Google has to send you a penny every time anybody uses Bard. Man, those uh, those fanfic writers are going to make bank. And the lawsuits are just going to keep happening because in particular in this country, fair use is not a precedent-setting decision. Every single fair use case evaluated on its merits, de novo, like it's supposed to be case by case. It's in the law. So you can just keep filing the lawsuits until something else happens. Could somebody just make a law at some point? I One would hope. <laughs> I don't know if you've been paying attention to the state of our government. <laughs> just fix it. Doesn't seem... One day. Doesn't seem likely. One day. George Santos is on Cameo. That's the state of our government. He's not in the government anymore. Well, he's on Cameo. Yeah, just good pivot. All right, we got to take a break. I'm going to sign up for Cameo. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. All right, we're, we're off the AI benchmark news. Yeah, we're Now done. it's time for hacks. Hacks and, and snacks. And freaks with a PH. Actually, a pretty important, what would you call it, Dan? A workaround? Uh, reverse engineering workaround. Yeah. yeah. But there's like- Solution. There's some spoofing happening there too, right? Yeah, okay. So, so, let's so, get into it, sorry. So Beeper, yeah. which is a longstanding iMessage workaround- that for years, basically, until just recently, involved uh, you signing into your iCloud account on a Mac Mini in the cloud as a relay service. It now has reverse engineered iMessage, and they say they can do it natively. Dan, what's going on here? Yeah, so uh, th- it's a it's a fascinating story. As as Neilai just said, you know, Beeper's been around for a while, but over the summer a developer posted proof of concept to GitHub that they had reverse engineered the iMessage protocol and was able to send messages directly from basically any device, Linux, Windows, Android, to Apple's iMessage servers 
without having to use a relay server. And when Beeper found out about this, uh, Beeper, who is uh, headed by former Pebble CEO, Eric Mijakowski. Pebble the smartwatch company. Pebble the smartwatch. Yes. Yeah. You do have to clarify. There are like eight failed Pebbles now. <laughs> um, don't name your future company Pebble. That's all um, my, my advice to anyone. He reached out to this developer, contracted with him. Turns out it's a 16-year-old high school kid. Yes. Hires him part-time to develop this into uh, a full-fledged app. So now what we have today is a new app called, they're calling it Beeper Mini for now. It is an iMessage client for Android. And it is exactly what that says. It is, uh, you you install it on your Android phone. You don't even have to sign in with an Apple ID. It talks to Apple servers, takes your phone number, and turns it into a blue bubble on iOS devices or Macs, whoever you're messaging. Uh, and it does it all locally without a server relay server involved. And the way that they kind of reverse engineered it is a fascinating process. I strongly recommend going to check out Snazzy Q's video on it because he explains step-by-step and frankly, it's above my head how it all works. But they end up spoofing uh, serial numbers of real Apple devices, which is a technique that's been around for a long time in the Hackintosh world and in other applications in order to get Apple software to run on things that maybe Apple doesn't formally approve. Apple's kind of just always ignored it and left it alone. Uh, but they're using this now to basically spoof iMessage onto Android and allow you to be having completely you know, full, fully supported for the most part, blue bevel conversations on an Android phone. And it's, it's fascinating because it works incredibly well. Yeah. Cause you've used it. Jake, I know who wrote the yeah. piece has been using it and you, you really like it. I think it's great. Like I, <laughs> I was, I, I switched my SIM fully from uh, an iPhone to an Android phone and nobody noticed like yeah. nothing skipped a beat. Like I am still a blue bubble to all of the iPhone contacts I've ever had. And now I can message with RCS and Google Messages app uh, to Android users. And I like don't get left out of group messages. I don't get missed notifications on reactions. I if I wanted to send voice messages, I could. Like all of those features are supported. Uh, it's just fascinating. When somebody says congratulations, do you also now get the balloons? So you don't get the mm -hmm. iMessage reactions, I think that's called. You don't have that. Uh, I believe they said they are working on that. They are working on actually integrating FaceTime somehow, which I don't know how they're going to do. Uh, and the one thing that they don't ever anticipate ever being able to support are the iMessage apps and games, which, oh no, sorry, yeah. big loss. Oh, oh no, not iMessage apps and games. The iMessage experience that most people think about on their iPhones is now fully replicated on Android. What happens if you have a mixed group of some Android phones, some Beeper Mini, and some iPhones? You just so the, the Beeper Mini is going to act as an iMessage in that, and the iPhones are going to act as an iMessage in that, and everything's just going to fall back to SMS. And so that would go through your SMS app, probably Google Messages on your Android phone, because it's just going to be an SMS conversation. When you text someone, are you getting the text both to your Beeper app and to the regular text app? No. Oh, that's cool. If you are iMessaging someone, that see the the app can like tell if you're talking to an iMessage client. And so it just your iMessage conversation stays entirely within Beeper Mini. If someone sends you a text message, it will come through your text message number through Google Messages. So well I was I was thinking like the 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 the, the example Neil I had where he was like, okay, what happens if you've got a beeper person and mm -hmm. an Android person and an i iMessage person, then where does that message like it goes to the beeper app because no it goes to sm it falls back to it, it, you in that scenario you the beeper mini user are using sms yeah and so the the like 
The annoying part of this is that you now have two apps for messaging. You have your iMessage app and you have your Google Messages app. And Beeper's plan is to, the original Beeper app was like kind of like an, an all-in-one message service. So all, it integrated all of your message services. Beeper Mini is strictly iMessage for now. Their plan is to integrate all of those other plugins into the Beeper Mini app, eventually drop the mini name, and sunset the old app is the, the ultimate plan. But for today, you, you're using two apps. And the claim here, which I think is important, we don't know if it's true, but the claim is that Apple can't stop it without completely rebuilding the iMessage protocol. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious. I think because I keep getting stuck on the spoofing part of this. Like with Hackintoshes, I used to, I, I built a lot of Hackintoshes when I was younger. I love it. It's a fairly small community. So it was like, okay, Apple, we were all like, well, Apple. The police are coming now. Yeah. You understand that Craig Gregory was listening to this. He just called the police. (laughs) Yeah. My poor dog's getting arrested (laughs) as we speak at home. Um, But but it was was super easy to do. It was a lot of fun. But it was also understood that, like, it's a very small community. So it wasn't really a big deal. And it wasn't like a bunch of money was exchanging hands. You Mm -hmm. weren't being like, build me a Hackintosh. Because as soon as you did that. Apple came down you well, on so like Well, so the difference there is with Hackintoshes is usually you have to go acquire Apple software and install it on a device. And there's no real legal way to get that software if you're getting like OS 10 Leopard or whatever yeah. without getting it from Apple. And Apple's not going to give it to you if you don't have a Mac. So you have to like basically torrent it. Well, that's why we all, like everybody I knew who did it had a Mac. We just wanted to also have... A tiny Dell Latitude. Can I, that can I tell you a story from my OS. youth? Yeah. So there was a company in Florida called SciStar. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. Uh, and it was like two kids, and they figured out how to build Macintoshes, and they did an early like internet marketing campaign where like take down the man, run OS ten on your SciStar. We can do it. And they had all these like I would call them Reddit caliber legal theories. Yes. About how it would be legal and how they would defeat Apple in court. And they would, you know, I had a SciStar, I reviewed a SciStar for Engadget. It was just a PC. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was like, I was like, what am I supposed to review here? <laughs> like, it's just a noisy ass tower PC <laughs> that like sometimes boots up into OS 10. That's what I used to build. And sometimes does nothing. <laughs> It, it was exciting, but they had all these theories that, like, if you owned a copy of the operating system, you weren't committing copyright infringement or breaching the contract. That's by, what we would all say in the, it was like Tony Mac 86X forum yeah. or whatever. We'd all be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're fine because we already own it. Like, I went out and I had, I had the physical copy of each DVD, CD for yeah. the OS that you could have until they stopped distributing them. And we were like, we got this. But we also generally, unlike Sistar, weren't charging for it. No, Sistar was like charging money. And got but this. This bought. is like folk copyright. Yeah, law. like you've convinced yourself that if you just buy the CD, you can make, you can send as many MP3s to your friends yeah. as you want. It was same thing with torrenters. They're always <laughs> yeah. like, no, no, we're fine. We're yeah, fine. and it, it is all just like you. You are concocting like a moral argument. <laughs> That somewhere some money has changed hands, so now Clarence I can do whatever. Thomas will ignore. Yeah, it's <laughs> who knows what's going to happen, man. <laughs> uh, but but my end of my side star story is they they pitched themselves a bunch, and they you know they were compelling. They were like young kids that started a business. They were taking on the man. They gotten all this attention, and some like local Florida alt weekly wrote this piece about how they were taking on Apple and who knew what happened. Oh. And so I, I wrote it up in a gadget. I was like, I can't believe they conned. I call I called it a puff piece. I yeah. was like so, a big puff piece about Sistar, like fun look at these guys, but they're doomed. And the reporter 
And I, I was like a baby blogger. Yeah. The reporter wrote me just like the most hammer email. Like, how <laughs> dare you? I would never write a puff piece. These are valid issues. And I was like, I don't know how to break this to you. Like, this company is not going to make like five minutes. And sure enough, Apple sued them and it went away. Immediately. And I was like, that was crazy. But it was it was all based on this argument that like, if you did one right thing once, then you could do the wrong thing as many times as you yeah. wanted. And I think the difference with Beeper is they're not using any of Apple's code. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not. They're just sending Apple a number. Right. That happens to be a serial number. <laughs> yeah. That's and, tough. And the the you know, reverse engineering is legal and protected. Like that is like a, a valid thing to do. It's particular, particularly when it comes to enabling interoperability, which is like the whole hinging thing yeah. here. It enables interoperability uh, for iMessage on Android devices. There is uh, another law that could get in their way. <laughs> like it's there it's always lurking in the background it's like one of the worst laws in the books it's the computer fraud and abuse act that says if you wrongfully gain access to a system that is a criminal penalty well this was how all the bioses they re- would reverse engineer the bios back in the 80s and you like had to be in a different room from the people reverse engineering it right uh, this is uh Kranz, this is a plot point of uh halt and catch fire it is a plot point but it's also true it really <laughs> happened that's why it was such a good plot point one of the best shows ever made uh but it is a, a whole plot line of it it's very cool i remember being really excited i was like they're doing it they're doing bios law uh but you know again it's a the, the technical side of this is really kind of above my head but Quinn over at SNESIQ in his breakdown video, and he like he installs the open source code on a Linux laptop and connects to the protocol and like does the thing uh, as it works to show what it's doing behind the like polished app that you see on Android. And it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. Uh, he makes a point that spoofing the serial numbers does have a number of legitimate use cases, and there's no way for Apple to know whether this serial number that you are sending them is the 2015 iMac 21.5 inch model that it was originally, or it's your Android phone. Apple can't tell that. So if Apple were to like turn that off, it would break a lot of things for legitimate users. So that's kind of where the the rub is. But because the code is public, because the activity is public, Apple could certainly sue Beeper and say, you are improperly accessing the iMessage servers that you are not supposed to have access to. And there is a long line of cases like everything in America, have total coin flip outcomes <laughs> once you hit the Supreme Court, <laughs> right? Like uh, AT&T won a case and the characters involved in the case are somewhat unsavory, but AT&T won a case for someone who was just hitting the AT&T website to do lookups over and over again, and that was a CFAA case. LinkedIn just lost a case to an analytics company called HiQ that was scraping the LinkedIn database, and it's like, well, that seems wrong with an IQ one. The Supreme Court just took another case where a police officer improperly did a lookup, like someone paid him money to use the police database to do a lookup. No, no. But he had he was authorized to use the database. He just did it in an unapproved way. And like you just like if there's a server on the internet and you talk to it and it tells you something, there's a million different ways to parse out whether that is legal or not legal. So does how big is Beeper's legal fund, I think, is the real question we need to be asking. Uh, the, here, there's a couple questions. Uh, right next to this, the EU decided this week that Apple did not have to treat iMessage as a, a platform that yeah. has to be interoperable. Like well, did, Meta did has to just, with WhatsApp. Did they decide or they just leaned in? I thought they've just leaned in that direction. They've signaled 
Signaled, yeah. European politics is a lot of signaling, posturing. Yeah. You rotate a piece of cheese. And everybody's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes, thank you, thank you. Thank it's you like, so much. Oh, you. the brie has turned to the left. I thank message you. will not be a gatekeeper service. Like <laughs> that's like it seems like that's not gonna happen. That is almost certainly because uh Apple agreed to adopt RCS. Right. Right, which was the gambit. And, and I think we all saw that as the trade. Like there's the threat of this big interop regulation, or they could do RCS and say, look, it's interoperable this way. Great, they did it. So that's sort of the background here. Like Apple's going to say, look, there's an interoperable way. It's coming. We're going to use it. Maybe only four people ever use Beeper. And the, or maybe they just – Apple's pretty litigious. Maybe they just send a threat to this company and say, stop it. But the need to stop it or Apple's desire to stop it is going to cause problems Yeah. because they don't actually have the RCS implementation yet. And so to say we, we're going to keep people locked out of our service – while we work on this other thing. I think it's just going to be, and it's an indie developer that's really well liked. It got a lot of press because a lot of Android people in this country really want to send high messages and they're going to pay Beeper $2 a month or whatever it is to, to do it. They should have solved this problem a million years ago. They should have found a way to do this on their terms a million years ago because now they're doing it on the terms of the European Union and somewhat improbably on the terms of Eric <laughs> and Beeper <laughs> Mini, which is just weird. It's a delight. And this is a 16-year-old kid who reverse engineered the protocol and was like, spare time. Like, that's a weird place for the richest company in the world to be. Yeah. Go after that 16-year-old kid. This is the thing. You want to file the CFAA lawsuit against a 16-year-old kid for reverse engineering a thing? Like, you're the bad guy. That's just straight up you're the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, that's what Sony did, right? With the, I think it was the PS3. Yeah. This is the legend of of George Hotz. Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm, maybe don't do that. Well, the George Hotz did work. It did Twitter work. for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's that. Uh, other p- big piece of news we should talk about this week. It seems like podcast industry is in turmoil. Spotify just had layoffs. They're canceling really popular shows, including a show that won uh, Pulitzer Prize. They canceled Heavyweight. The title laid off 10% of its staff. It just seems like, in general, podcasts... They had the big tech moment where all the money from the big tech companies, particularly Spotify, rushed in. Yes. And now the tide is it's like come back out. Spotify rushed in with zero plan, and then when the the gravy train like well, the, did the not plan continue, was celebrities. The plan was own this entire industry as quickly as possible, like grow so fast, so big that nobody can stop us, and we're a tidal wave. And then like we'll be supported by all our ad dollars, and the ad dollars are like, no, we're not going to support you that much. Right, and they bought an ad tech company. Yeah. And they wanted to do dynamic insertion of ads. Because they were trying to own the whole ad tech industry side of Spotify. Like Disclosure, podcasts. our ads are served by Spotify's ad tech platform, Megaphone. Disclosure, we're a podcast. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm disclosing there. Like someone uploads this to this thing and we use it. It's yeah. great. Someone else runs the ads. But it's true. There's your disclosure. The whole story to me is they thought they could take a big, rich, open ecosystem mm-hmm. and turn it into a very closed one. Yes. You could turn Spotify in the open podcasting ecosystem into something that looked a lot more like YouTube. And I, I think it just didn't work. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think they, they failed. Like, and we all kind of knew this. I remember Ashley came on, Ashley Carmen, now at Bloomberg, broke a lot of this stuff about Notable Spotify. Notable trader, Ashley Carmen. Yeah, horrible trader, but came on this very podcast, like, what, two years ago, talking about this. And we were all like, ooh, this doesn't sound like it's going to work for Spotify. It feels like they're just ignoring everything else about this and why this is a bad idea. It feels like we were all right. High five all of us <laughs> two years ago. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they've held on to Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Uh, his deal is up for renewal, we have been told. So we're 
tracking that. Did not hold on to Prince Harry and Meghan. So Meghan and Harry didn't make it. Uh, you know, there's something interesting there. You know, the, the tech industry loves to talk about going direct. Yeah. Like, loves to talk about going direct. You don't need these journalists at Pexy. And it's like, if you go direct and you have nothing to say, no one will listen to you and you will have gone direct to no one, which is truly the Harry and Meghan story. <laughs> like, they're out of things to say. Yeah, they, they did the book. We were all like, thank you. This is actually all we wanted from you. Yeah. We just wanted the tea. And I'm not even someone who... Like, I'm Indian American. My people have fled the British twice. Like, we just get out. And I, <laughs> I do not care about any of this. But it's like, even the people I know who do care, and we have them on our staff. Mm. Liz Lapata and Sarah Jog love some royal family drama. And they're like, whatever, we're done with this. And like, that to me is, you need some tension to tell a good story. Yeah. And like, that's, you buy a bunch of the celebrities directly, you're not going to have any tension. Every celebrity podcast is like a celebrity and then someone else just needling well, them. Or uh, there's there, the new trend now is it's the D-list celebrities that were on the shows with the really big folks. They all get together and then talk trash about the big folks. Yeah. And then sometimes talk about like how they slept with the entire cast. And you're like, a lot of Disney Channel. <laughs> like, Why? Don't get into the podcast scene, guys. There's so many like Disney we're Channel We're ending this podcast before we – before we go that way. Yeah, we're, we're, we won't do that. <laughs> it's wild, though. That's the new trend for celebrity podcasts. Yeah. Well, all of that seems like it didn't work, just to be clear. <laughs> like Spotify worked. burned millions of dollars in this. They torched Gimlet, which was a darling. It was failing as a company. And obviously, they sold to Spotify for uh, tons and tons of money that they had no plan themselves to, to gain because they were failing as a company. So good, good on them. But it also broke Gimlet. It broke Reply All. It broke the culture of that company. It, at some point, like, the mergers are just bad. The acquisitions are just bad. And I think this feels like they bought Gimlet, they bought Parcast, they bought Anchor, they bought Megaphone, and they had no plan to munge them all together. They bought the Ringer. Yep. And the plan to munge them all together seems like it just failed. Yes. But the stock is up, and they turn their first ever profit. And it's like, is that all that matters? Well, if you, if you like money, yeah. Yeah. I think we're I think – I don't think podcasts are going anywhere – you can see some of them are still growing. You can see money is flowing to some categories in them. But it, it feels like we're returning to a much more sustainable place to grow the podcast yes. industry. It was very unsustainable for a while. And now it's going to be like, we're only going to support podcasts where people actually say something interesting. Maybe. Is, and, and also Joe Rogan. <laughs> um, and then the other thing Spotify and all the other big podcast players are doing is they're, they're focusing on chat shows influencer you know the, the the solo podcast where the influencers just rant at the screen but it looks like a podcast yeah a deeply fast like that's a media phd that's gonna be my spinoff if, if there are any media phd any media studies students out there pursuing a media studies phd i would read your dissertation on the the one person podcast where they just talk the whole time <laughs> what do they do i, I just I, <laughs> I i like to talk <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I mean, do. I love same. it. That's, it's that's my favorite. the AM radio model, right? Like that was the Rush Limbaugh model. It was the Alex Jones model. Just talk to the microphone for three hours straight. Yeah. I'm just dying to know in podcasting to do that on your own and then to like close your laptop lid and be like. I did it. <laughs> Good <laughs> there's, job. There's something in there about like that personality making that kind of content with that kind of distribution that I promise you is a PhD thesis. I'd read it. Like there's some feedback loop in there that I just want to know more about. Just send it to Neil. Send it to all of us, honestly. I want to read that too. <laughs> well, do it. Go get your PhD. 
That's what I'm telling you. That's a good use of money. And then title, obviously, obviously laying off its staff. Uh, again, another Jack Dorsey, brilliantly managed company. Yeah. Love it. It had Beyonce for a while. It did. Uh, and then last piece of little media news, and we'll take a break. Apple is munging together its iTunes movies and TV shows app into the proper Apple TV TV app. So now we have to use it. And it was already sort of done that way. Yeah. So it's just like, they're just like cleaning up the crumbs. <laughs> like the people who haven't really touched their workflow in 20 years are going to be like, oh no, how am I going to like watch my old Aquaman episodes from 2006? That sucks for them. But also the rest of us have been living now where you just use the one app. Yeah. yeah. I'm judging Plex. people. You're what I'm doing what is, you mean is Plex. Alex's no. Plex app. It's the Apple TV app. Sure. Uh, by the way, there was a, a piece of news this week, very distressing. Sony just deleting TV shows that people bought yeah. on PlayStation accounts. We're going to talk about it later. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. We'll talk about that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, we're back. Sliding around time. Tell us about the Sony thing. Earlier this week, a lot of PlayStation users noticed that they were just getting banned out of the blue. Like, not... A lot of people say, oh, I'm getting banned. I don't know what happened. And you're like, no, you do. Uh, this wasn't the case. They were just like totally outright banned. They didn't know what was happening. It was a whole lot of people, which was the other part of this. And so Jay Peters and Tom Warren looked into it. And, and eventually Sony was like, oops, our bad. And just slowly has been giving everybody their account access back. And it was all just an accident. It was just like a, a, a bug and they, they, they screwed up. But it also just immediately reminded everyone, particularly when paired with the fact that Sony also recently said, okay, a lot of this content you purchased from Discovery Plus, you will not have access to it anymore. We've changed mm -hmm. some of our licensing. It's just like a big reminder that you don't own anything you buy digitally. Yeah. You, you don't own any of it. It's not yours. It's all licenses. It's all fake ownership. And, and Sony just accidentally reminded their entire <laughs> like customer base which yeah. is not what you want to do when you're highly dependent on all of on all of them buying shit on your your stores they just radicalized a lot of people into buying that disk drive yeah which is maybe this is all a plot to get people to buy an <laughs> external disk drive yeah they're just trying to like move those disk drives they're like all right you're like losing someone it all. opened a closet like we have a lot of blu-ray drives <laughs> Way more than we thought, you guys. All right, pull the Disco Plus stuff. <laughs> Let's go. We got this. Dr. Pimple Poppers out of here. <laughs> we got to move these drives. But Jay wrote a really great piece uh, just kind of lamenting it, and, and he's absolutely right. Don't, like, if you really want to own something and you want to own it for a long time, don't just buy the digital version. And a lot of times you can just go buy a DVD or a Blu-ray and get the digital version. 
Then you have both yeah. for the same amount of money. And look, I'm building a new home theater right now in the new house. Ooh. I'm really thinking about putting a Blu-ray player in it. I don't know why. Do it. I, I've got one. I, I use know, it I once a do. year. I know you do. <laughs> I plug it into my my yeah, computer. Use it once a year to rip legal media to your Plex server. You know, it's it's folk folk copyright <laughs> law, and we don't need to talk about yeah. it too much. I've here. got a Blu-ray player that's been running Mac OS nine for a decade. <laughs> It's great. All right, Dan, what's your lightning round? Uh, I got two. Okay. Ooh. Can I do both now? Or? Yeah. All right. Uh, the first one is uh, Allison did a review of the Razer, uh, which is not to be confused with the Razer Plus. It is Motorola's budget flip phone. Turns out it's not a very good phone. Uh, I'm just going to start off by saying that. But what's really fascinating to me about it is uh, this is priced at 700 bucks, And because Motorola discounts things 100% of the time, all the time, uh, you can buy for $500, which means this is a flip phone with a folding screen for $500, which is kind of like a fascinating thing to me that we are already at that point of affordability of these kind of flip devices. The cameras aren't great. The processor can be a little slow. The outside screen is not very useful. It's not a phone I would recommend anyone buy, but it's pretty cool that like we've gone from these are all $1,000 or $1,400 to $500 in just a couple of years. Uh, so. That was my first uh, one. Yeah, it's true. And we we the second that first Galaxy Fold came out, we're like, oh, the cost curve on this is going to go. Yeah. Yep. What's interesting is the technology curve has kind of stopped, right? Like the screens are better; they're more durable. That was the big mm -hmm. thing, but they look largely the same. They're still lumpy. Well, there's lumpy, but even just like the way the materials look and feel. Yeah, they still are soft kind of plastic. Yeah. It doesn't feel like hard glass. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, the, there was some, there was a lot of talk about bendy glass in the beginning. Do you remember this? Yes. Ultra thin glass. Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? I well, it, it's it. all in there. It just, that what well, the, the way they work is there's a layer of ultra thin glass. And then on top of that is a soft plastic screen protector. And that's what you touch. And yeah. that's what provides that kind of not so great tactile experience. As with most things, technology kind of like make it better and keep the cost the same. Or you can make keep it the same, keep bring the cost down, and we are very much on the keep it the same, bring the cost down part of the curve. There's not mm -hmm. the step change into the P particularly for the flip designs. The fold designs are still very expensive. Uh, the, you know, the OnePlus Open came out earlier this year, and that is available for around fifteen hundred dollars. That's kind of like the low price for these folding phones. Uh, but the flip phones, and I think it's part of who these are marketed to. Folding phones are marketed to like Uber do-everything nerds like me. And then the flip phones are marketed to people who want something a little bit more fashionable, a little bit more compact, discreet, don't want to spend 10 to 12 hours a day staring at their phone like I do uh, and, and want to make it more of like an intentional device. And so they don't need the fastest processor. They don't need the highest end camera system. They don't need the bills and whistles to run decks and things like that. Uh, even though I think Motorola lets you run its version of decks, which is called ready for on its flip phones. So hey. that's the thing you could do. Nilan. Hey, I want to see that next doc with a Motorola flip. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Bad camera, slow processor. Great. Mm. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. You all knew this was going to be my lightning round. Mm -hmm. You knew it. There is no choice except for this story to be my lightning round item, which is the photo of the woman in the, in the bridal gown. Like I saw it. And I, I, as soon as the news broke, what, earlier this week, I was like, mm, 
No, I know so what I'm the news about. broke a couple weeks ago. Did you, a couple of weeks and ago? And then OpenAI happened and we forgot about it. <laughs> okay. So this photo, there's a photo of a woman. She's trying on a wedding dress. She's in the bridal shots. One of those. There's mirrors all yeah. around her like you do so you can see yourself from all the angles. And she's making a different pose in all the mirrors and then in person. She's a British comedian. She posted her Instagram story. Uh, she said, this is crazy. I've never had anything like this happen. The immediate theorizing about AI photo composites started happening, smart HDR. She said she went to the Apple store. Someone, t- some Apple store employee told her this was Apple beta testing a competitor to best take on Google, which makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> this is all true. This all happened. All right. This is all in her Instagram stories and yeah. Instagram posts. Uh, Tom Warren, because she's in the UK, Tom Warren reached out to her. I was like, we got to get the actual photo. We got, and so Then he reached out to her. He got the photo. We were talking about it. Then the opening eye news broke. Tom is our Microsoft reporter. He and I got very distracted. Very busy. We stopped paying attention to the woman in her wedding dress for a minute. The The post came back this week. Mm-hmm. People saw it again. Oh, the same amount of theorizing happened. People calling it fake, a publicity stunt, a social media, and we had the file, and nothing about the file indicates that it's fake. Like okay. the, as we, we were, Tom was sent the uncompressed, un, seemingly unaltered original photo off the iPhone, and we were looking at, it, we were trying to figure out, we were like gone to ask Apple because it is very odd, yeah, that she's making three different poses in the mirrors, and so everyone's trying to like figure this out. Again, a lot of people claiming it's fake. It turns out someone else had taken the photo, and they had the camera accidentally in panorama mode. Oh, yeah. So it actually did stitch together several frames across to make it panorama. But if you don't move the camera enough and you don't get a wide enough picture, the iPhone does not append the panorama label. Yeah. The oh. the only tell, and uh, I, I, I think uh, – uh, there's a YouTuber, iFondo. Uh, his name is Farouk. He's the one who kind of like popularized or, 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 or told the world about this reasoning, how it worked. But the only tell is that the resolution of the final image is not the same as the resolution that is captured by the sensor. And so the uh, Photos app does not say panorama because it's not a panoramic view. It's too uh, tall and narrow. It's, it's a vertically composed shot. Uh, but the pixels are different. And so that is like the tell there that is in panoramic mode. Uh, Farouk was able to replicate this very quickly as soon as he figured that out uh, by putting his phone in panoramic mode and like doing a very, uh, like a, a, another shot just that same way and was able to replicate it in- instantly. So it's it's kind of fascinating. What's really fascinating to me is like the stitching is like perfect. Because <laughs> uh, the, cam- like, the awesome. camera isn't moving. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know you could do that. I thought like you, because it always is like move the camera. That's what my phone sounds like to me, but it's, it's always yes, telling me to yeah. move the camera. So I'm yeah, always I think like, it just tells that Alex that tells you how well people follow directions on their devices. Do, when can they're I just, just ignore that? You can just ignore it. Yeah. One Apple should just label all panorama photos as panoramas. That yeah. seems like an easy fix to the solution. But two, the expectation that AI is just going to munge with reality is everywhere now. Well, I don't think the expectation is the reality is. Like, that, that, that's the reality of the situation. But, like, I think people are still ex- – because that's why everybody thought it was a fake because everybody was like, you're a liar. You did this on purpose. You used Photoshop or, or Panorama or whatever. And it's like, no, she just accidentally did it. Yeah. Like, But even if you even if you think this is the world's greatest publicity stunt. Yeah. Targeted to a very small community. Very small group. Uh, it relies on an understanding that AI exists mm. and is doing photo stuff. Mm, that's true. That's true. 
right? It's not like it's either ghosts in the building. Yeah. Like, no, no, it's like, oh, the, the iPhone cameras AI took this completely unbelievable picture and it AI generated you. And like, people will believe that that's true. Yeah. And a lot of people believe that it's true, such that other people were debunking it, like the whole thing. And in the meantime, it was a totally different lane yeah. of photography. Yeah, because a lot of the theories were around it was doing that thing where it chooses the best shot of you. And it just happened to assume she was three different people. Right. It, the chose- mirror had confused some, like, some sort of like best take. Yeah. But Apple Smarty Share does not work like this at all. And even Google best take does not work like this at all. Apple Smart HDR stacks seven frames in like half a second. She would have had to move her hand so fast. <laughs> Just, <laughs> <laughs> like, like totally insanely too fast. Like that's why I was like, we got to get the original file. There's no way that an iPhone just generates this because I was not thinking about panorama mode. Yeah. So it's a Photoshop we, we might have been able to tell. But the thing that got me was she sent it to Tom right away. Yeah. Like, Tom reached out weird. and she was like, here you go. And that, that like to me, like you are a reporter long enough, like, oh, there's some things where like, if there's a hesitation there, yeah. it's like you only can get a compressed one. Then you're like, is this it, off the record? And then you blame WhatsApp. Like there's all this stuff that usually happens yeah. when you request an original. And she was just like, here you go. Okay. So I was like, all right, there's something here that I don't understand. And the, the panorama of it is interesting. The, the thing that is truly fascinating to me is that the culture is ready to receive AI fakery as an explanation for anything. Yeah. And like, I'm just telling the, the what is a photo apocalypse is like well and truly here. Because you can tell anyone that a photo has been AI faked and they, the chances of them believing you are just steadily going up. Yeah. Even if it doesn't turn out to be the case. That's when all my photos now are going to be fakes. You don't know. <laughs> they already are. They already are. I haven't taken a real photo in 20 years. All right. I've got a couple other ones just to go through quickly. One, this is maybe my favorite story of the year. Windows has an issue that is just renaming printers to HP LaserJet <laughs> across the board. It's the it, only printer you need. It's a very good. It's just it's advertising. Like, it's like, will AI kill us all or will the HP smart app <laughs> worm its way onto literally every computer on the planet and like begin taking out centrifuges? And buying ink. <laughs> and buying ink. Like the problem isn't paper clips. The problem is ink cartridges. Uh, so Microsoft says it's looking into it. It's Windows 10 and 11. Uh, printers being randomly renamed to HP LaserJet. Uh, some issues related to printer configurations are being observed on Windows devices, which have access to the store. It's just very good. It's so good. Uh, everyone just has the HP Smart app now. Your printer is an HP LaserJet, and that's you're going to like it. Yeah. We, we do say buy a laser printer, but we usually say brother, not, not Official HP. statement. Most printers are being named as HP LaserJet M101-M106. The icons <laughs> might also be changed. It's, like, oh, it's so good. It's very good. Uh, then, uh, just real quickly, we are going to cover Epic v. Google in much more detail on the Wednesday show. Mm -hmm. Sean Hollister will be on the show. He's been in the courtroom. But this is really important for this case. Google has gotten itself into an enormous amount of trouble with this judge for deleting records throughout this case. Ooh, that's a no-no. Like, an enormous amount of trouble. The judge is furious. Last Friday, he said he would investigate Google personally for, quote, intentionally and systematically suppressing evidence he called it a frontal assault on the fair administration of justice. And he said, I'm going to get to the bottom of who is responsible on my own outside this trial. Yo. I don't know what kind of. <laughs> I, like, I, I've, been in, I've, I've been in enough companies that are, that are like getting lawsuits and stuff when you're told to retain all your records <laughs> that you just never think to not. 
You're just and, like, yeah, and, and, my mess is going to be out there. And Sundar was asking, like, can I set this chat to auto-delete? They were deleting stuff left and right. They admitted in court that they were just deleting stuff. Uh, at one point, the judge called in Google's general counsel and made him answer to why these policies were – he's furious about this. That's great. I will investigate this on my own outside this trial. It's a very funny threat. Like he's going to get a magnifying glass. Takes and start his robes walking. off. He's, he's puts on a leather jacket. Yeah. Uh, little fedora. Like and he's a, like, let's go. He's like a 70s bad cop. <laughs> you know, it's going to be crazy. Driving his old ass car. <laughs> exactly. he's, like, he's got a muscle. He's got a GTO and a magnifying glass. He's like, where are the records? Uh, I don't know what that will lead to. But importantly, he has told the jury, not that they have to, but they may infer wrongdoing on the part of Google. If there's a question that the missing records would have answered. Okay. Right. So he's in, and that's like a pretty loaded suggestion. I was like that. I mean, it's like, well, that's fair, but also ooh, that's bad for Google. Right. So the, the idea here is that the, the jury is going to consider, and it really, it really seems like Google might lose this case yeah. in a way that maybe at the end of Apple, you know, I, I still think uh, Epic walked away with one important just the way the legal system works. They want a bunch of stuff and they want to appeal, whatever. But Apple was like, we just run our business and that's it. Google, there's all this evidence and there's a bunch of deleted evidence, all this stuff. It really seems like Epic mounted a much stronger case with Google. Yeah. And now the jury is being sent and they are allowed to infer whatever Google was hiding was bad, which is just a big deal. It might come to nothing. It might not come to nothing. It's just worth noting the judge is furious like this is the shadiest thing google has done and the judge is furious about it and he has told the jury about it and it's going to make all the the appeals really messy because I, I just assume they will all be appealed whatever the decision is oh whatever the decision is appealed it, it all just the, what you appeal is the law yeah okay. so the facts remain the facts and so just and this is why you don't delete your records right yeah because this will happen right but the, the an appeals court does not to get to go back and say the jury's finding a fact were yeah, wrong. Right. They get to say that the law is wrong and we should change the law or like this okay. other thing. So that's, that's a little, it's a little right. law school I, I see, technical. I see, I see the technical. Um, but so here the inference of the jury was, you might appeal this was a wrong inference to give the jury or whatever, but he didn't. He didn't instruct them to think one way or another. He said they were just allowed to, which is a very important instruction. Anyway, I would just say the Epic v. Google case, we're going to talk about it much more with Sean on Wednesday. Get into it. But that was the one that stuck out to me this week. It's like, ooh, there's something there. All right. And then the last one I just want to call out, uh, Allison Johnson, second call for her today, has a big piece as part of our infrastructure package about just 5G and the fact that it hasn't paid off for anyone. Uh, and she, she basically listened to all the big carriers' earnings calls and, and how they're talking about their investments, what the investors want. There's nothing there. Like, it's basically like they might compete with fixed broadband. So you, you, instead of having whatever ISP you have, you might get a 5G fixed wireless device. They seem excited about that. They're excited about enterprise customers buying fixed 5G networks, which is hard because you got to have an enterprise sales team, which many of them don't. And then they can do what Verizon is calling pricing actions, mm. which means one thing. I hate it. The action is turning the price up. <laughs> That's the action you can take. You know what we can do? You got faster internet. <laughs> now you pay $100 more. Enjoy. Uh, I will remind everyone. We actually got a note this week about Project Genophysis, the ill-fated attempt to turn Dish Network into a mobile carrier. Still technically a, 
they they have it. They've um, I believe Allison points this out. They've technically hit their coverage goals, but they've done it by leasing space on AT and T and T Mobile's network. So they have not actually built a nationwide wireless network. It's just Mitchell. It's just Mitchell. He's out there on the trail. Uh, our own wonderful Mitchell Clark, who we, we tried desperately to use Project Gen 5, says, we, this whole thing was a boondoggle. Yeah. It cost a lot of money. It put all these carriers in debt. It consolidated us down from four to three. Well, three in Project Gen 5, says, <laughs> and now we're doing pricing actions. Like, we should just see it for what it is. You should read Allison's piece. We'll link to it. It is great. It is very clear-eyed and direct about what has happened. Uh, in a way that is not just me ranting and raving and like makes the argument really well. It's good. You should read it. Send it to all your friends. Uh, and, and Lena Khan. And then whatever carrier you have, switch to another one. <laughs> that's that's my advice. That's my end of the year advice for Roadcast listeners. Whatever you have, just switch to another one. Make them all feel it. Be like, why is this happening? Oh, just do the churn. Yeah, just churn them up. Churn moment. <laughs> it's a churn moment. Just we, I'm just saying we just got to create the appearance of some competition. Yeah, yeah. I, I really am excited to go to AT&T. I'm not. No, I, I mean I'm. I'm just thinking about this advice. That seems <laughs> You're hard. like, no, don't actually do. I that. don't. Just do whatever feels right in your heart. That's the Virtuess, everybody. That's my message this holiday season. Whatever's in your heart, do it. Oh, uh, speaking of the holidays, by the way. Yeah. Holiday spectacular coming up again. We've done HDMI. Mm-hmm. We've done Bluetooth. Failed at Jeopardy. We did not do a good job with Bluetooth Jeopardy this year, by just popular demand, just wave of demand. The Vergecast Holiday Spectacular is USB-C. Yes. We've got the guests lined up. we got the ideas. we got the plug fest coming. And we're going to do another game show this year because Andrew insists that we do a game show. Uh, <laughs> I believe it's The Price is Right. Are we allowed to say the Yeah, we're allowed to say it's a game <laughs> show that is not – it's not The Price is Right. If I don't have a, a giant wheel. <laughs> we're going to up the ante this year. All of us are going to be playing for one of you, a Vergecast listener, and whoever wins gets a big bag of swag. So here's what we need from you. Uh, call the hotline, 866-VERGE-11. That's 866-837-4311. Tell us your name and your favorite USB-C gadget. We'll put all the names in a hat. We'll pick them out. We'll play. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. We're going to compete then, for you. Yeah. I'll represent you. Alex will represent someone else. I'm so, and so sorry. On. And then whoever wins gets a big bag of Verge merch. I'm actually doing a lot of USB research it's just, right now. Actually, this just says some Verge merch. So whoever, some Verge merch. <laughs> Could be Depends a small bag. how bad your person does. <laughs> I've, I've seen the merch. The merch is good. It's quality merch. So it'll be a good price. Are you prepping to to, to help your your listener? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading all up. I'm going to know some specs. Oh, boy. I'm going to know what ohms mean. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> She's got it. I'm ready. Let's go. I got you. Alex is going to do some high school level electrical <laughs> uh, research. It's going to be amazing. Uh, no, that's it. That's coming up. The USB-C Holiday Spectacular, one of our silliest yearly traditions. Back and forth the USB-C. Tell us your favorite USB-C gadget, 866-Verge11. We'll pick some people. We'll play for them. The winner. Get some merch. Sounds pretty good. Call the number. That's it. That's the Verge Chest. Rock and roll. And that's a wrap for VergeCast this week. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-VERGE-11. The VergeCast is a production of The Verge and Vox Media Podcast Network. 
The show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. This episode was mixed and edited by Xander Adams. And that's it. We'll see you next week. 